The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. And Augie. Hi. Today on SpexCast, we are taking a look at commercial crew. Starliner and Dragon 2 are finally nearing launch after years of development. NASA isn't just content with LEO commercial spaceflight and has released a request for proposals for manned lunar landers. We also catch up with Marco, a pair of satellites that became the first interplanetary CubeSats during the InSight Mars lander mission. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out daily space news and mission deep dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, and join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also send us a tweet at SpexCast or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. All right, so the first topic we're going to talk about today is NASA's Next Step 2 program, which recently opened up to commercial uh, proposals for lunar landers for use by humans in the mid-2020s. This is part of a larger project under the Space Policy Directive 1 and is requesting proposals for uh, lunar lander vehicles for cargo and eventually humans as part of like a multi-phase lunar exploration partnership. And there are, let me count up here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven parts of this Space Policy Directive, including habitation, fabrication, power propulsion, in-situ resource utilization, or ISRU, and a human landing system is Appendix E in this document, and that's the one that just got released on February 7th. This is kind of another element of the overall project that involves SLS Orion and the Lunar Orbiting Platform Gateway. When the new lunar focus for SLS was announced, we really had the space station that was going to orbit the moon, but everyone was asking, when is NASA going to send people to the moon? Are we going to build a moon base? Uh, this is kind of the first step towards that, uh, building vehicles that can take humans back to the surface of the moon using the lunar orbiting platform gateway as kind of the stepping stone. Yeah. And, um, in this whole document, uh, where these requests for proposals are being made, it's like different companies can propose their ideas on how to do different parts of it. I think this would be incredible for NASA. I think it shows that they've taken some of the learnings that they've had with commercial crew and and with working with some of their different commercial partners, and they're trying to leverage that to make a huge impact. I mean, if they can get big funding for this kind of program, um, even if it's just you know the the funding when SLS is is no longer needing all that development funding, um, it can make a huge difference because they're going to have all these commercial partners now proposing ideas to uh, basically get to the moon, develop ISRU, and do all these different capabilities that NASA may end up being too bogged down with bureaucracy to do themselves nowadays. The program actually has a really interesting kind of development pipeline. So NASA has three demonstration flights. Uh, in the notional timeline, one being in 2024. So this would be the second uh, module launch for the gateway. And so you have an SLS launch, an Orion launch, and the new module. And then the lunar descent element as kind of a test flight would fly on a separate rocket. So that could be Vulcan, that could be uh, Falcon Heavy, that could be uh, New Glenn. And that descent element would uh, berth up with the gateway and then basically do a practice lunar landing. An interesting point here is that 
actual solicitation uh, places additional merit uh, on reusability, recyclability, and extensibility, in their words, um, on these designs. So like reusability would mean using the same vehicle multiple times. Recyclability would mean like using something that goes to the lunar surface to like carry people, but then if it can't go back up into orbit, you can keep it there and use it as like a storage tank for something like that would count. And extensibility would be like taking um, earlier designs that are made for these 2026 missions or another uh, demo mission in 2028, hypothetically speaking, and then having that be the foundational design for future vehicles and, and plans further on down the road when NASA is more ready to go to Mars or something like that. I, th- I think it's pretty significant that reusability, recyclability, and extensibility are part of this as opposed to more disposable methods. I guess disposable is a crass way to put it, but it, it implies that NASA wants a more permanent presence. They want a more continued, sustainable presence on the moon and are ready to put their money where their mouth is um, in the awards for the Next Step 2 program. Yeah. No, I I definitely think it's interesting that this proposal has some elements of the Moon Direct proposal that Robert Zubrin put out last year, where using uh, ISRU on the Moon's surface lets you get the equipment back off the surface easier because you don't have to bring all the fuel all the way down and back up. And I think you're definitely right. Uh, Having that kind of long-term vision of we're going to need to be able to reuse a vehicle more than once, more than 10 times or more, uh, definitely points to more extensive operations. If you think about the uh, lunar excursion module for Apollo, you know, those are massive vehicles that uh, only took two people to the surface for a limited time. Uh, and to build one of those nowadays uh, kind of alters the spiritual successor to that that was canceled in the early 2000s. You know, that takes a ton of lift capacity and it's just very expensive to send any significant amount of stuff to the surface of the moon. And so I think using the gateway as kind of a staging ground to make the trips shorter between the surface of the moon and orbit, and then also reuse definitely increases the opportunity and the frequency of these landings, which is something I think everyone can get behind. The proposals by these private companies, they're due by March 25th. We haven't seen any like formal responses to this uh, RFP yet, but we already can kind of gauge out where some of these companies might go. For example, um, Blue Origins modified New Shepard being used as a vehicle to go between some orbiting station like the Gateway and the surface of the moon. Uh, according to Eric Berger, SpaceX may be putting a proposal for a manned lunar lander. Um Starship comes to mind, but when you look at the ask from NASA, Starship really doesn't fit into that, right? It's not two vehicles for ascent and descent, and I think it's more massive than anything they're asking for. And so I think it would be interesting if SpaceX proposed something smaller, but I don't think that's likely. Uh, I do think the Blue Origin, uh, Blue Moon Lander concepts are most likely become a candidate. And also uh, ULA with the uh, Zeus lander, which is a modified version of the Centaur upper stage to have basically four downward firing thrusters, uh, might become a interesting 
kind of evolution of an existing vehicle to suit this proposal. Yeah, you're right about Starship and and that whole architecture not being really right for this next step two program. But remember Grey Dragon when SpaceX was talking about doing a flyby around the moon in their Crew Dragon capsule. Now, Crew Dragon looks a lot like kind of like a smaller version of what Orion intends to be. Um, But this proposal specifically calls out Orion as part of this next step two program. Do you think SpaceX might kind of, you know... I don't think they'll pitch Dragon because if they pitch Dragon, that would mean they would have to fly on like a Falcon Heavy or a Falcon 9, right? I mean, it's not going to dock with any other rocket. I think they could pitch Starship, though. I, I don't. I don't think there's any world where SpaceX doesn't at least uh, apply. You know, pr- prepare a proposal because it's fairly low effort for them when they're already working on a lot of these technologies and capabilities. And I agree with TJ that it doesn't really fit the bill of exactly what NASA is looking for. But it's something that SpaceX, I'm sure, would be happy to develop and work on if they were able to get funding for NASA to do it because it's going to be very synergistic with their other goals to ultimately go to Mars. Yeah. And kind of the third part of the proposal is working on refueling uh, ISRU systems as well as surface suits. And so everyone's kind of made a big deal about the SpaceX flight suits, which look really cool. But those are basically pressure suits. They're not designed for extravehicular activities and they're not designed to be used and worn on the surface of the moon or Mars. And so that would be an interesting way for SpaceX or another company to get uh, funding and development in for a more durable surface suit, Um, which I don't really think we've had any viable new surface EVA suits since Apollo. Yeah. And uh, ISRU and, and surface EVA suits are things that, you know, I would think SpaceX would want to eventually work on for trips to Mars and maybe not this part of the proposal, maybe not the, you know, trans- the vehicle that's going to take people from Gateway to the surface. Maybe that's not what SpaceX is looking to do, but other parts of this like ISRU and EVA type of technologies would fit the bill for what SpaceX likes to stand for, right? Reusability, um, extensibility, building technologies that have the future prospects of contributing to that Mars mission. Um, That really is in line with their philosophies. Phil, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the descent element and the ascent element can be separate vehicles, Right. right, from different companies. Yeah. And so there's totally a possibility that we see a Blue Origin ULA SpaceX hybrid or some combination of that where each company might be playing to their strengths and different fuel types they specialize in with their propulsion teams. Uh, SpaceX about to get manned spaceflight experience. ULA solely does launchers in Blue Origin, doesn't have any plans for manned orbital spaceflight. And so it could be up in the open to see how flexible these things are. Right. And to be clear, you meant that a hybrid being different companies get different parts of this architecture rather than working together on one vehicle, right? Yeah, yeah. like a transfer vehicle element could be kind of a stripped down dragon that may, maybe doesn't have a heat shield, doesn't have as much um, structural integrity for uh, reentry, but has maybe the same flight controls, the same Draco maneuvering thrusters, for example. All right, so uh, we do have our forum.specscast.com. 
where we'll have a thread open related to this episode. So um, if you think you have any good ideas or uh, you think you have any predictions as to which companies will propose which architectures, go ahead and post that there. Um, we'll be checking it. And you can also tweet to us your thoughts at Specscast. Uh, while commercial lunar landers offer an exciting prospect in the future, another NASA commercial program is reaching operational status. After years of development, Crew Dragon is almost ready to take flight. So currently it's mid-February. Uh, we've been w- waiting for the first unmanned launch of Crew Dragon for a couple months now. Uh, it was scheduled to be for late December, in January, then February. And as we're right now, it's no earlier than the beginning of March. But we're basically at the finish line for the first flight test of Crew Dragon. Yeah, and we've talked about Crew Dragon before. You know, it's a part of the commercial crew program, um, you know, American capabilities to bring astronauts to the space station and cargo to the space station. So, like, this is a really big deal, not only because this will be the first time the United States has the ability to launch its own astronauts since 2011, but there's also a time crunch where NASA has been purchasing seats on Soyuz flights um, for the past seven plus years, and they haven't decided to purchase flights for 2020 and beyond because they're counting on both Crew Dragon and Starliner to become operational this year. And so it really comes down to will these tests like will these test flights go flawlessly and if there are issues can they be fixed quickly enough that at least one of these systems can become operational before 2019 ends. And to kind of up the stakes, Soyuz uh, the the crew version of Soyuz had a launch issue last year, which kind of threw a wrench in the reliability promise. Or Soyuz had a, a launch failure on a crewed launch last year, which put into question whether Soyuz can be this 100% relied upon way to access space, right? Because we're down to only a single crewed capsule and one rocket capable of launching it. And yeah, since the end of the shuttle, there's only been a single way for humans to get into space. And if there's any issues uh, with that access, humans are cut off and the impact could have been we lose our permanent man presence in space on the space station. And so with all that in mind, there's a ton of pressure on both companies, Boeing and SpaceX and their engineering teams to get these uh, systems tested and approved and flying. Right. A, a few things here. Crewed spaceflight has been on people's minds, not only with commercial crew, but um, for a while we've been talking about, oh, the things that Dragon could do. It could, you know, Gray Dragon could take humans around the moon. Red Dragon could take, who knows, cargo capacity to Mars um, as was part of, you know, the slide deck way back when. And now Starship is, you know, a hopper is being built down in Texas. So what does the future for Crew Dragon look like now that um, Elon, at least, is already looking past it? He's already looking to Starship. Red Dragon and Gray Dragon are kind of have been written off because Starship can do those things. How long will Crew Dragon last? Well, it's it's definitely interesting, um, kind of the history of these proposed use cases for Dragon. There was Dragon Lab, which is for Dragon 1 to be used as kind of an orbiting laboratory space. Uh, that was proposed and talked a lot, never flew, and it doesn't look like it will fly. 
you mentioned Red Dragon and Great Dragon were kind of these development missions or PR missions to kind of push forward uh, SpaceX's overall goal of pushing humans beyond low Earth orbit. But both of those are canceled and Starship is kind of leading that front now and it's getting a lot of press. But I think when it comes down to it, Crew Dragon was funded and created to take astronauts to low Earth orbit. And it is finally ready. It's going to be doing that. And they're going, there's going to be flights. It's going to be, uh, I think it's going to become a kind of a workhorse, um, at least for the next half decade, at least. And so, you know, that's why it was built. All of these other considerations and potential missions, they didn't pan out. But the core use case for the vehicle is still there. Augie? Yeah, and the ISS is funded at least until 2024. At least that's the plan anyway. And so I imagine Crew Dragon taking on, you know, pretty much a lot of the astronaut ferrying between them and Boeing up until that time point um, at a minimum. Because Starship is not going to be NASA certified for crew by 2024. There's just no way. We'll see if it even you know, flies humans by then. Um, and I think the other interesting question will be this year, who gets the flag? So on the very first shuttle mission, uh, there was a flag brought up to International Space Station. And the next time uh, Americans visit on a U.S. launcher, um, that group gets to return the flag. So there's uh, you know a strong competition between Boeing and SpaceX this year to see who gets to fly first um, and actually bring that flag home. So yeah, closely following Crew Dragon on the predicted demonstration launch schedule, uh, on the calendar is Starliner, which is Boeing's crew capsule. Yeah, Starliner, I mean, I think a lot of people don't give it credit because at the time when these systems were proposed, SpaceX was making a lot of big promises about Dragon. You had propulsive landing and you had rapid reuse and you had, oh, it can go to Mars as well. Uh, but now if you look at it, SpaceX's Crew Dragon is going to be landing in the water, just like Apollo. But Starliner is actually landing on land, like with Soyuz. And that's using a mixture of retropropulsive landing, as well as airbags to soften the landing. And I think that's going to be really cool. You're going to have astronauts taking off from American soil and then landing on American soil for the first time. Another interesting thing has been kind of the development challenges and changes that Starliner's required. It's going to be flying on an Atlas V. But they're actually building a custom fairing for the capsule because there's a dramatic change in the diameter with the capsule on top of the Centaur upper stage. They actually had to build an aerodynamic skirt that extends down uh, to move the center of pressure to make it more stable. Um, and I think that's going to be really interesting to see fly because usually when you think rockets, you think part stacked on top of part and that's it. But during flight, you're going to have this Centaur-Starliner hybrid, and then this skirt is going to have to separate and pass right through Centaur during flight, um, which it feels kind of risky, but it's going to be uh, really cool. And, you know, I think it's a kind of interesting engineering solution to a problem where it's like, well, we have poor aerodynamics. Let's just kind of bolt on bolt on a skirt to, to fix that rather than having to redesign the the rocket it does point out a unique advantage that spacex has because they've been building crew dragon for purpose built you know all along to fly on the falcon 9 um, and obviously they've had to make modifications as well but those have been due to different issues and, and nothing due to like you know change in vehicle or anything like that 
SpaceX definitely had an advantage with the cargo dragon heritage. Like they've been doing late load cargo where they're putting things into the capsules just a few hours before launch. Uh, the overall shape, you know, we meant just talked about the changing diameters. Dragon 2 and Dragon 1 are the same diameter, launching the same launch vehicle. Uh, so there's some kind of risk reduction through that. Right. But keep in mind, Dragon 2 is at its core very, very different than Cargo Dragon. It, it is, but, um, you know, SpaceX said that they wouldn't be, uh, they aren't planning on reusing Crew Dragon for, for crew. But what they could be doing is, uh, you know, launching these crewed missions uh, for the first time with astronauts and then repurposing these for cargo after they fish them out of the ocean, kind of like they're doing with Cargo Dragon today. And what that could do is really help streamline their manufacturing process so they only need to build one type of dragon and they would get to fly Crew Dragon on many, many more missions because they could use it to resupply the International Space Station without flying astronauts, which would get them you know, many more flights and a lot more experience much quicker. Yeah, just like they did with the Falcon 9 developing reusability. Right. Exactly. Right. When you have hardware, you know, the purchaser, in this case, NASA, might not be comfortable reusing certain bits. But if SpaceX can take that and repurpose it, then they can save a ton of cost. Um, and it's also going to be interesting to see uh, a big selling point for uh, Cargo Dragon was the berthing port, the common berthing mechanism that lets it put full size science racks in and out. Uh, but any kind of cargo version of Crew Dragon is going to be using the docking port, which has a much smaller diameter. Uh, and so it's going to be interesting to see that. And while there's been proposals to have a Crew Dragon with Super Dracos and that kind of equipment with the much larger uh, CBM on top, uh, I don't think that's likely to be something that we see in the next, in any immediate future. Yeah, and you guys both uh, brought up risk. And one thing that came out at the end of uh, 2018 that we haven't talked about on the show is the NASA Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel that was uh, put out at the end of the year. And so um, NASA looked at Boeing and it looked at SpaceX and how they're developing their vehicles and also the vehicles themselves. They identified some major risks that exist with both of these systems and put it out there. So c- let's go through and, and compare, you know, what, what are the stakes here? What are the stakes, the issues that we know of? with both uh, SpaceX and Boeing? And, uh, you know, how how do these two different companies compare? Sure. I, I can touch a little bit on some of the, uh, you know, some of the uh, ASAP panel's review on SpaceX. And uh, one of the things that they've been really concerned about in the past that they've come around to is this process of load and go. So essentially what SpaceX has wanted to do for a while is uh, essentially have astronauts on board and then fuel up the rocket right before launch. Which is, which is nice uh, because it allows them to kind of cryogenically fuel the rocket uh, and, and keep those, you know, li- those fuels really, really cold right before launch. Um, the problem is uh, NASA had some concerns with that because now you're essentially doing this fueling procedure while astronauts are on board. So the alternative, which NASA is more familiar with, would be to load the rocket up beforehand and then board crew. But then you're putting at risk, you know, all the launch personnel and the people that would have to be near the pad to help with those loading loading procedures and things like that. So right. it's uh, it's trade offs there. And the Amos six failure didn't certainly didn't help at all. <laughs> oh, not at all. Yeah, and there's also the 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 COPVs, the composite overwrap pressure vessel, that was the cause of failure on Sierra seven. So essentially, what SpaceX has done is they've uh, completely redesigned these uh, COPVs, and you know they say they're really confident in them, but 
Anytime you have a rocket fail, especially if it causes loss of a payload, there's you know going to be concern about that part of the technology and things like that. Oh, I'm sorry. I said it was the CRS-7 loss. The CRS-7, yeah, it was the strut on CRS-7 that broke um, as a result of the um, COPV failure. Do I have that right? No, uh, Amos 6 was the COPV. Amos 6 was COPV. Yeah. You mentioned um, Amos 6, oh, because they were fueling it going. Right. Right, right. Right. Well, what about Starliner, TJ? Well, uh, before we go to Starliner, last thing on the COPVs, the ASAP panel has mentioned that during testing, there is still a potential ignition source that's related to the fiber breakage, uh, which is the same kind of failure mode that was part of uh, the AMO 6 accident. And so it's really interesting to see that just inherent in the metal tank with carbon overwrap design, there might be this inherent flaw that you really can't get rid of, you just have to find ways to minimize. So uh, on the Starliner front, uh, probably the biggest issue has been a fuel leak during an abort motor test. So uh, Starliner is using a pusher abort system that is liquid fueled, similar to Dragon. And while they weren't doing a qualification test, which is the test that the results go directly to NASA that is part of their evaluation, this was a development test, there was a fuel leak and a fire, and that spawned an internal investigation and has caused kind of rolling delays, which kind of puts Boeing about two to three months behind SpaceX uh, on their launch plans. Right. And another thing that the, the report uh, goes into, and I find this really interesting, is uh, their engineering systems. Systems engineering and integration, it's section E of their report. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's honestly my favorite part of the report as well. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, Systems engineering, it's the philosophy and approach by which each company kind of takes when building these very complex, very highly integrated systems, and they both do it very differently. So Boeing is using a traditional uh, systems engineering and integration or SE&I approach, which has, uh, you know, they've, they're going on the backs of all the uh, history and legacy that they have worked on thus far. So it's a very mature, very stable, very rigorous approach to systems engineering. SpaceX, uh, being you know the young gun, uh, has introduced their own internal tracking system using uh, new technologies uh, to provide extra traceability and stuff in the design process. Is that right, TJ? Yeah, so what I find interesting is that NASA has basically kind of gone on like a, a research trip to SpaceX and gotten a ton of documents, a ton of interviews to kind of figure out how they do their engineering. Um, so how NASA defines software, systems engineering integration includes a process to understand the margins of an integrated system design. And that's very, very important because margins define safety. And especially in aerospace and space vehicles, those safety margins are very small. And so if a change to a small, say, for example, uh, the bolts used to build some kind of structure, say, for the spacecraft, were changed from three-quarter inch to five-eighths inch, right? A very small, subtle change. But if there's a 1,000 bolts or 10,000 bolts on the spacecraft, that small change might push over the mass budget and now the whole vehicle is heavier and now the abort system doesn't work because it had a limit on how much mass it could push safely away. And so that kind of interplay of all these tiny changes that can have big impacts on safety and reliability are really important to track. 
So SpaceX's internal tracking system is a little bit different than the traditional one. Yes. So they they use what uh, NASA is calling a spiral design approach, which I really don't have a lot of experience with. I just think it's really cool. I mean, I don't know. I don't have any insider knowledge or anything like that. But from reading the report, um, it sounds awesome. They're basically doing the spiral development model. And essentially, they've built this software process where they can design, test, and modify really, really quickly. And they built the software tools to support that kind of automatically. So if you think about um, you know, wanting to make a change to a rocket in the standard SE&I approach, there's you know a lot more meetings and things like that. And uh, here it sounds like what SpaceX has built is something that's different, something that um, is, is software-driven where it can do things like TJ said, where it can you know, aggregate all of those changes up into, into one and, and, and look at the impact of those changes across all the different piece, parts of the infrastructure that connect to whatever that component is. Um, and it connects all of their uh, history, which I found to be the most fascinating thing about it. So essentially, they can go back and have complete traceability from component design, uh, the drawings, their design nodes, all the way up to production procedures. And so you can start from this kind of inception of this idea and watch how it's grown all the way into some new production protocol and production part, both for software and for hardware. So at any point in time, um, and this is one thing that like, uh, I've, I've found is an issue just working at a startup myself is that there's often so many different things to do that you just you, you you fix them quickly, but it may not necessarily be the best solution. And then you move on to other things and the company grows and somebody else is assigned to that task and they don't realize why that thing was in place. And you may not have put that thing in place because it was the ultimate best solution, but just because it worked for the time. Right. And so now with with this kind of tracking and traceability, someone can go in there and see what were people thinking when they added, you know, when they created this production part, what were they thinking about? What were the design uh, requirements and things like that? So this just seems like an extremely powerful tool that I think uh, would be really useful at, at, you know, plenty of other companies as well, not just rocket companies. Yeah. And I think that's, um, NASA agrees with you. And one of the things that they mentioned in the report is that um, SpaceX has shared statistics on uh, use of the tool and all these details with NASA. And I think that's actually really critical in building that trust in the, the system itself. And so the panel decided mm-hmm. that it is satisfied with the approach. It's pretty impressive that some of this new technology has satisfied the safety advisory panel just as much as the traditional SENI approach that Boeing is using um, is pretty impressive. Uh, some of the statistics the ASAP report has is that the system used to have uh, 10,000 user entries per quarter. Um, so that's everyone from the engineers to the technicians building the rocket. And that's grown to 50 to 60,000 entries per quarter. So that's a ton of changes and data that's going to the system. And so that kind of speaks to not only the capabilities for handling the volume of data going through it, but also being able to visualize that data in a processable way. Um, They basically have what uh, NASA calls a bill of design, which is a record that encapsulates all those changes for a single part, Um, which in a traditional engineering structure, you might have just a kind of design review that might cover every single thing about the project. It might be 100 pages or 400 pages. And so you might have to reference a single page of a single doc across 20 docs over multiple years in order to figure out those decisions when now those are encapsulated in a bill of design concept. Right. All right. So uh, there's a few more things in this 
in the safety advisory panels uh, report that we didn't touch on today. We do have a link to the PDF on uh, our blog. And um, NASA documents are usually pretty dry, but this one is a really good read. And uh, the meat of it is only up to 30 pages long, plus a lot of appendices. And it's got some great uh, diagrams and stuff. So head over to our blog to, to check it out and read it for yourself. Okay, so the last thing we want to talk about today is MARCO, or Mars Cube One, uh, which are the two CubeSats that hitched a ride with NASA InSight on its trip to Mars last fall. Okay, so MARCO are, are CubeSats um, that were fitted with X-band antennas, were, which were used in tandem with NASA InSight. So when InSight was entering into the Martian atmosphere during the seven minutes of terror, uh, that actually happened on the far side of Mars, so there wasn't like a direct link with the NASA Deep Space Network. And these CubeSats were able to relay the telemetry from the InSight lander back to the Deep Space Network so that people at JPL could watch and see what was happening in basically real time. So we actually have an interview with uh, one of the engineers on the project, Joel Steinkraus, and he went into how these two CubeSats themselves were tech demos. He didn't even have full confidence that they would live long enough to take pictures of Mars. Well, it turns out they did. They did their job with the relay and they continued on flying past it into solar orbit. Um, unfortunately, uh, JPL has uh, announced that they lost contact with one of them, Wally, on December 29th of last year, and the second one, Eva, on January 4th. This whole time, these two CubeSats have been kind of telling engineers what CubeSats are capable of in interplanetary space, which is like some of the hardest conditions that you can subject the spacecraft to, right? And I'm really surprised with how well they performed. Yeah, so uh, JPL has a, a couple theories on why they've lost contact. Uh, the first up is that uh, Wally has a leaky thruster. So that could be causing uh, erratic uh, movements and related to just general attitude control issues which caused them to wobble and they were not able to send and receive commands using their antennas because they're very, very far away from Earth. And even with X-band antennas, you have to be extremely precise in order to establish communication. Another possible issue could be that the brightness sensors, which measure where the sun is and help the satellite point its solar panels to receive power, uh, could be having issues, which then would prevent them from getting new power also, the batteries could be wearing out, and so they're not being able to store enough charge. Right, and uh, having attitude control issues and brightness sensor uh, issues are doubly bad because the further away you get from the sun and the further away you get from Earth, the more important it is to have really good pointing control. So, um, yeah, so they're having trouble pointing at Earth, which is a smaller and smaller target for them, and also... Um, the sun is further and further away, which means you have to make sure that you can get the most sunlight on your solar panels as possible. And if it's off by a little bit, that could potentially mean um, that it's not getting enough power and not recharging the batteries. Yeah, those two uh, spacecraft are still in solar orbit and won't come closer to the sun until this summer. Once they're closer to the sun, hopefully they'll get more power if that's the issue. And so JPL will attempt to make contact with them again later this year. Yes, yeah, but again, hope is not lost. Eventually, as they get closer to the sun, there is a chance they could get more power, they'll be closer to Earth, 
and there might be better pointing accuracy. So we they could be recontacted. Right. But the point is not regaining contact, right? There's no future plans like extended mission plans for these satellites. The fact that they made it to a flyby around Mars and still functioned with that uh, bonus mission of being the relay is insane. And so the technology on board, um, some of these parts were even experimental. They built two of them, put them on the satellites, but they also built a few more as spares. And so now that JPL knows that those worked, especially in the interplanetary trip, um, they can use these same parts on uh, other systems for the f- for future missions, like the radios, uh, the antennas, and the propulsion systems. This mission was always about pushing the limits of miniaturized technology and seeing just how far it could take us, said Andy Kleiss, the mission's chief engineer at JPL. We've put a stake in the ground. Future CubeSats might go even farther. Yeah, I think that's particularly exciting because we've seen CubeSats in all different applications in low Earth orbit from universities to commercial businesses. But to have that kind of miniaturized technology being able to be used to go beyond uh, to Mars and in the future even farther uh, definitely opens up a ton of possibilities. Our our interview with uh, Joel Steinkraus about Mars Cube One, these CubeSats, was really enjoyable for me. And, and we still have that up on the website. You can go and download it from wherever you download your podcast. It's episode 56. Uh, we also have uh, a transcript up on the blog. Okay, last topic for today. So last episode, we talked about uh, the first flight-ready la- Raptor going to the test stand, doing its first uh duration firings and kind of proving out uh, that these engines are meeting all their design specs. Well, that testing campaign has been going exceptionally well. And uh, earlier this week, Raptor passed 268.9 bar uh, on a single test fire. And that exceeds the Russian RD-170-180 family, which had been holding the uh, record for highest chamber pressure for almost 30 years. And so it is kind of a uh, sentimental uh, accomplishment. Um, Raptor theoretically has even more performance to gain through uh, densified cryogenic propellants. Uh, and it's symbolic because it kind of shows that we've caught up in a sense to where we were in the 80s uh, and that these new engineering teams with new rockets and new designs are exceeding the technical accomplishments from the past. So uh, what we're learning about Raptor is changing even since, you know, a week ago um, when we recorded our other episode. We're now a week later and we're getting these updated stats, updated pictures of continued Raptor testing from Elon. He's basically like live tweeting these tests as soon as the information is available, he's sharing it. And we asked him um, on Twitter what kind of outreach program SpaceX is thinking of for Starship uh, since NASA inspired so many people with things like Apollo, like this could be the next thing. Elon replied, just planning on keeping the public informed about progress and setbacks. Will be some RUDs along the way, but excitement is guaranteed. I, I hope that uh, Elon definitely continues posting these videos, even if there's like a failure or an explosion, and it seems like he will. So I was just going to say that an RUD, for those people that may not know what it is, is a rapid unscheduled disassembly, which is a term that SpaceX has used in the past for... for all of their past failures, which they've learned a lot from. Now, one of the reasons that we asked that question is that through NASA being a public entity, pretty much all of their work has been broadcast to the public. 
There is a ton of archival footage, uh, design documents, notes on design decisions and meetings and, and how these programs grew and evolved and produced the rockets and accomplishments we've seen, um, which private companies have no obligation to share. And so while I think we can laud SpaceX for being extremely open about their tests and their failures, their proposed ideas, and then uh, broadcasting their accomplishments live to everyone on the planet, um, it is going to be a question of in five years, 10 years, 20 years, looking back on the evolution of these rockets, how much of that information is going to be publicly accessible? Because there's going to be a rich history and tons of lessons that the engineers and the company went through and they experienced that SpaceX has benefited from NASA's learning and challenges when they were developing rockets. And so uh, I would like to see them even be more open than they are now. Uh, we've seen some mini documentaries that kind of go inside SpaceX and get you know, interesting shots of the engineers and the people and mission control and that kind of thing. But uh, this, the more open uh, they can be, especially when we're talking about significant milestones that are really going to act as kind of trailblazers for a whole bunch of follow-up companies, uh, I would prefer to be as, tr- as open as reasonably possible. Yeah. And we're final. like right now we're at a point where these private companies are benefiting from the public information from NASA. But years from now, when we're looking back on where we are today, like we look back on Apollo, um, it's going to be completely different because these companies are, you know, they have proprietary information. They have a competitive edge. And I really hope that um, companies really see the the value in making things important or at least sharing these lessons like you, like you mentioned. Yeah. You know, I think it's unfortunate that launcher startups like SpaceX and Electron and Vector were able to pull from the vast knowledge uh, earned through NASA. But say 20, 30 years in the future, a Mars colonization startup might not be able to pull from a similar source of data. And so I think there's interesting questions to that. Then there's considerations on both sides. Phil, you brought up the competitive edge. That's definitely important, right? One of the issues of being a first mover into any industry is that you take all the risk in proving out a concept, improving its viability, and follow-up companies can move quickly and don't have to deal with that risk because you've taken that on. Uh, And so that's why a lot of this has to be proprietary information. Uh, not even considering ITAR ramifications, which mainly govern uh, ballistic missiles and launch vehicles, less so uh, spacecraft, especially interplanetary spacecraft. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's an interesting change in how uh, space activities are conducted, and I don't necessarily think it's a hundred percent positive. I mean, we could agree all day on that. Uh, so, so that said, with NASA putting out. The next step to program the commercial crew program. There's flow of information and resources from the public side to the private side. Um, but I don't know. Is it fundamentally wrong to assume that information could flow the other way from the private sector back into the public? I think um, considering an information flow perspective, instead of it being an explicit 
we are publishing our results, publishing our methodology, showing our notes and designs like NASA has, I think it really comes down to people where SpaceX is a large company, uh, but it does have turnover. They just experienced layoffs as well. They are taking in a ton of new grads and putting them into in a very intense engineering environment where they're taking on these aerospace challenges. And the percentage that quit or leave, they are either starting new space companies or they're joining new space companies and bringing that innovation culture with them. And so I think that's kind of the primary mechanism of which these kind of new innovative ideas are going to spread. You know, we talked about the systems engineering and integration system that SpaceX has built. I think if you're a new grad engineer who's gone to SpaceX and spent five years or 10 years with that system, and when you decide to leave and go to a company that doesn't have that system, you're going to become an advocate for either building out a system like that or adopting some of the best parts of that into that new company. And so I think that's going to be a very intense cross-pollination there rather than these explicit technology and information sharing agreements that NASA is able to pull off. I think the key is that they'll be actually turning a profit and that will create competition. It's not like when Thomas Edison invented the light bulb with GE, people, nobody else knew how to make light bulbs. You know, people figured it out and they competed. And so I think, you know, today what can happen is SpaceX can build this great technology. And like you said, they're going to have plenty of people like coming in and out their doors all the time. And that knowledge is there. And they're basically training all these people on how to build better rockets. And we're basically going to see this, this knowledge that we haven't had in rocketry since, you know, Werner von Braun's era. Exactly. I think it's even though explicit information sharing might be less, uh, less easy to pull off, the amount of innovation going on is definitely increasing. All right. Oh, TJ, you actually wrote a really good article um, on our blog ex- explaining the context around these Raptor developments um, and, you know, how that fits into the RD-180, how Starship fits into all this. And uh, it's a really good article. Good job. So those are the only topics I had for today. Well, thanks for having this discussion with me, guys. And thanks for coming back on the show, Augie. Yeah, it was good. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening. Uh, if you like this episode, you can subscribe to Future Ones through your favorite podcast service of choice and tell your friends about us. Our other episodes include interviews with key space people like Tori Bruno or Chris Hadfield. And you can find in-depth articles about spacecrafts, rockets, and recent commentary on current events in the space industry on our blog, blog.specscast.com. You can also let us know what you think of the show by leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And reach out to us on Twitter at Specscast by email uh, via specscast at gmail.com or tell us your thoughts about this episode on our forum, forum.specscast.com. Our music is by Nelson Scott.